0: I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. Today, my co-host Adam Duvander is with us again, and we also have Matt Beal coming to us from Switzerland. Matt's had a wide variety of experience across finance, insurance, a whole bunch of different industries, and has this really cool project called API University that we definitely want to learn some more about, but more importantly, kind of understand what you've learned from all that background and kind of what we can help teach the community here. So Adam, tell us a bit about yourself, and then uh, Matt the same.
1: Yeah, thanks Jason. I work with every developer, and we work with API companies to engage developers. And one of the things that is always hard, I think we all know on this call about connecting to APIs, is dealing with authentication and identity. And I know that we're going to talk some about that today, Matt. So I'm excited to have you here.
2: Yeah, my name is Matt. I uh, work on the API topic for a couple of years for different companies, as Jason has already told us. I have this project, API University, where I kind of bring together all the best practices that I've learned over the years and make them accessible to the community.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's funny because we were talking earlier that back in my Barcelona, more Europe flavored days, we ended up chatting about this thing. So like, what kind of sparked the idea to pull together this kind of university-style approach to APIs?
2: Yeah, when I was working as a, as a consultant and I was consulting lots of companies on APIs, I just realized, hey, there are so many topics on APIs that come up over and over again. And I thought, hey, let's just structure that knowledge, write it up, and make it accessible to the whole community just to improve, like in, in general, the knowledge about APIs.
0: Yeah, I would say like sometimes it's a selfish interest in like dumping what you know, so you don't have to say it over and over again, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that aligns perfectly with kind of the, what we try to do on the show is like just find folks that have done this a lot and have some track record of success and figure out how can we help everybody get up to speed. So I think Adam already like hit the nail on the head for me is what's the long pole in the tent everywhere? Like what's the, the hard problem? I feel like it's always identity when i walk in the door somewhere i'm like what's your plan with identity and auth so i think from any angle of it I kind of what have you learned about that and kind of what works
2: what is really new about oauth before the oauth pattern came up we already had authentication authorization what we did was passwords right login and password or we had certificates but what's new about this API economy is basically that you don't only have two players involved, but you have three players. You don't only have a client and a server, but now you have the end user in the game as well. So it's always this these three players that you need to authenticate and that you need to know about. And OAuth is the protocol, how an end user can basically do the delegation of his access rights to a third party, which then can access in the name of this end user and something like this had to be in place because all the things that we've tried before using these old style patterns they just didn't work right because what basically happened is that you handed out the master key and put this gave this to the third-party application and that was just not a safe thing to do it's like Checking in a hotel and instead of getting a hotel key card that gives you access to one hotel room, to your hotel room for exactly the period of time that you stay at the hotel. But what it does is it gives you the master key. Basically, you can open all the doors and that's not that's not safe. And that's why we needed auth. We needed to have a solution in place. That's a really good metaphor. I'm
0: going to steal that one. <laughs> you know, you said there's a, you have to recognize there's not two parties involved, there's three. I would say there's at least three. I mean, what about scenarios in which, like I'll steal from PayPal Day's scenario, one that's easy for everyone to understand, is you might have someone buying something, the merchant who's selling it, obviously PayPal's in the middle as that third party, but then you might have a partner involved in that transaction, right? Maybe it's like spending your credit card points through your credit card company. They're a fourth wheel in that in that scenario. How does that get represented in this kind of OAuth context?
2: I mean, there's always someone who is doing the action and the person who is actually triggering the transaction is probably the one that is authenticated with OAuth. And the third party, that's um, maybe the application that you're using in order to do that. And the fourth party, that would then be on the receiving end, someone.
0: You know, I know in that case, it comes down sometimes to like, What is kind of the carrier for all this identity context, right, which these days more and more often you see like jots and like, you know, that stuff tends to kind of get stuffed in there. That way you're hanging on to this additional context that gets passed around between service calls and stuff. But I was just curious, you know, if you had seen something like that or something different, I feel like everyone gets lost when it's like, wait, there's more than three, what do I do?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think these JOT tokens, of course, have some limitations, right? Because on these JOT tokens, they seem at first glance, when you look at them, like the better OAuth tokens, because you can put stuff in them. And of course, you can combine it with some reference token that you usually use in OAuth and you can use the JOT token instead to to put that actually as the access token into your solution. But then when you just use a JOT token, you may have a problem with the logout, right? Because the JWT token is just valid for a certain period and you can't revoke it after that time.
0: Yeah, and and I guess JWT for the listeners, JWT, JSON Web Token, I think in this kind of identity space these days has become the pretty universal package for containing all this context on API calls. And I don't know, maybe we'll go down the rabbit hole a, a step deeper. Sometimes all that stuff gets packed within maybe microservice kind of internal calls Have you seen sort of external JWTs and this kind of identity stuff becoming
2: more prevalent? Sure. I mean, the most prevalent uh, use of JOT tokens is OpenID Connect. I think there you see it left and right. And then, in the OAuth context, usually what I see is that people on the outside use a reference token. So just yeah, for the north, north-southbound interaction, they use a reference token, and then they mediate it or mediate it when they come inside the organization and then maybe transform that into a JWT token with much richer context and pass that around in their microservice architecture. So by reference token, you
0: mean sort of an opaque identifier that doesn't actually contain a rehydratable
2: JWT? Exactly. It's just a big random string, like a primary key.
0: Yeah, that's always my preference too. I think I see people sometimes pass JWTs around externally as well. I'm always like, do you really want all that additional context out there? (laughs) Have you seen good patterns for like how to do that kind of mediation from the external kind of opaque identifier back to a more internal kind of rehydratable jot?
2: Well, you usually do this somewhere on some security solution. I think there's already solutions in place that do that thing for you. I usually uh, recommend that you don't write things in the security space yourself when there is a good product that has taken care of all the loopholes. So I really recommend using something that's already proven it's funny, Adam. I, I had guests on
0: before, and kind of I've relayed this idea that like the first day of a hackathon is OAuth and the second day is actually building stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Being able to get past that point where you can make that that first call and actually start to get something interesting is definitely a hurdle, and especially when you know you mentioned using specific tools that already exist. Even the standards, also. I mean, at, at Zapier we would see people be creative with authentication (laughs) and even be uh, there's a post oauth but which is we're oauth but we've done this other thing that is makes it not oauth but we've somehow decided we need this sort of creative approach to it maybe i talk a little bit more about the pieces of the stack there, so you mentioned OAuth and and OpenID Connect. What are some of those best practices for someone who's looking to, to authenticate their APIs externally now? The first big best practice is actually using OAuth and
2: not using something that you made up yourself. And also try not to change something or optimize OAuth in some way, leave some part away or Put something on top of it because um, it's quite well balanced how they have designed it and there's a lot of thought that went into it and when you just start tinkering with it you lose some of the some of the good stuff as well there's a lot of additional standards that come on top of OAuth the OAuth is a framework and you have right now a lot of standards from the OpenID Connect community which layer on top of it for example for For financial service, you have the FAPI, the financial grade APIs, which give you an extra layer of security by adding some crypto to it. And of course, OpenID Connect itself is is another of these profiles on top of the OAuth framework. And of course, there's best practices that you can use. So OAuth 2.1 basically is a collection of all the best practices that have been collected out there in the field. And they are now in one consistent standard and one consistent document for you to read up. So I th- I think that's a good place to start. And then also, for example, the Pixie Pixie edition, where you use extra cryptography to avoid certain attack angles, is something that nowadays is basically recommended and part of the two dot one standard. And that's Pixie PXE? PC private key. Uh-uh.
0: It's the acronym quiz. Do you actually know what the acronym means? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's uh like PKCSE or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you threw me off when you said Pixie. My old like networking days came up on the like PXE like Ethernet controller stuff. I was like, that can't be the same thing. Anyways, Sorry, it's part of API design work over the years is when I hear an acronym, I get weird. I'm like, wait, what does that mean?
1: Oh, someone Googled it? No? <laughs> yeah, proof key for code exchange.
0: <laughs> all right. Oh, OK, oh. there we go. So today we learned PKCE <laughs> means, what was that again?
1: Yeah, PKCE, proof key for code exchange.
0: Cool. Got all these people that are supposed to know what we're talking about. We don't even know what the acronym means. <laughs> this is why acronyms are dangerous, people. All right. <laughs> Matt when you were kind of in these consulting days working with different companies I know in a lot of your kind of call LinkedIn history is a lot of larger organizations have you kind of worked with some smaller places before and when you think about that when we boil down all this big crazy complicated stuff what's more appropriate when you're getting started
2: I mean you have different challenges when you're a startup than when you're a big enterprise Right? So I think a lot of things that are difficult for an enterprise are a non-issue for a startup. I think um, what is common for both startups and, and enterprises are, how do you do API front-end design? I call it front-end design. How do you um, structure your API? How do you do the resource design? How do you do the parameter design, the URLs? How do you get your REST principles uh, set up in the right way? How do you do the security? So all of these things are basically the same. But then you have some backend design decisions, which are usually a lot, lot simpler for startups, right? Because you write your your backend, so basically they fit to the API. But in a enterprise, you have this zoo of, you know, lots of different backend systems, technologies, uh, they work in a completely different way. And then the non-functionals, right? The non-functionals are usually then where you have to make real trade-off decisions in enterprise solutions.
1: What do you mean by non-functionals?
2: So there's a, well, security, availability, reliability, and all of these parameters. Or the operational kind of stuff
0: right yeah yeah it it is true like I like the, I always call this like the link the HTTP level kind of API design stuff is the lingua franca, right That's the thing that doesn't matter where you go, like if you know that part, the complexity of the implementation can be somewhat irrelevant, which you know I usually put poorly when I talk to people and it's like, you know I don't care about your implementation. <laughs> like you know we can deal with that later if we can get this part right. So, I guess when you approach that kind of, I found it interesting, you called it front-end design. And what I think you mean is the kind of the actual API sort of REST language, the resource design. Yeah, but the interface, exactly. How do you approach that kind of design process in building something done the right way? How do you boil that down in simple terms?
2: Design is basically making decisions, right? And you can't not make a decision when you do design. So that means you have to make your decisions consciously, right? That gives you then the good stuff. So because when you not make it conscious decisions, you will make an unconscious decision, and that's probably not the decision that you want to take. Yeah, I, I like to look at APIs as a as a Lego plug, right? Look at this guy with the props. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so awesome. So I stole this from my kids. You know, my, my kids are probably gonna hunt me down. It's like, where's my red Lego block? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so for audio listeners, Matt's holding up a Lego block. So if you're not watching a video, you should be. This will be instructive.
2: Right. So um, what I see on the front end of the, or on the front side of this Lego block, that's basically what I call the front end, and that's what I describe in a Swagger Open API specification. That's my REST interface. There's my parameter design, my resource design, my URLs. Basically all this all this stuff that I put into an open API specification. And that's the bumps on top of the Lego
0: block, right? The sort of male part of it. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And then when you turn that Lego block around, you basically have the connectors to your back end. Right. So this thing here, there you need to worry about, we've talked about it, mediation of tokens to the internal part. You you will care about transformation, for example. Some, some of the XML stuff that's happening in the back end. And then in the middle, you have all these trade-off decisions to take care of. Fascinating. You're a man of metaphors and I like it. Being from Texas,
0: you know, we can't help it. And That's how we communicate. We don't ever actually say what we mean. We just describe everything in metaphors. <laughs> so it's funny too, because you see this Lego metaphor a lot with APIs. I mean, Adam, I think we've seen our number of Lego slides at conferences over the years for sure. And so I think kind of what I would summarize in practical sense is you're describing that you may have some big, obtuse, confusing, complex backend, but creating that kind of connectability on top, like a Lego block, and making it sort of portable in the sense that there's a lot of Legos out there, everyone knows how to connect those, implies that it's also easy, and that you're creating this ease of use and portability. So how do you look at approaching that question of making it easy to use?
2: Yeah, I think that's the holy grail, making things simple for developers. And why is that so difficult to get your head around making things simple? Because when you see an API or anything that's simple, you don't really think, oh, that's simple. But you think like, oh, that's natural. Or, hey, you don't really need to think about it because it just works or it just flows. So it's very difficult to recognize things that are simple. But usually Recognize the opposite. We usually recognize when things are too complex, right? That's when you when you see it. It's basically you want to design something for the absence of complexity. There are some best practices that help you to, to get into the right direction. For example, there, there are certain patterns that you can use over and over again. And when you think about your portfolio of apis for example it helps to be consistent in your portfolio right all the apis behave kind of the same way and why is that so helpful because a developer who works with multiple of your apis will after a while just find it intuitive because he says okay i have seen that before in that api and that other api that just works the same right so this intuitive that's where you want to get at that a developer doesn't need to read the documentation. The documentation is there if he really needs it, or for some corner case or so. But actually, you want to design your API so that the developer doesn't need to read the documentation. I like that design for the absence of complexity. I'm
0: stealing that one too. <laughs> Adam, I know you're you've been deep in that documentation world for a long time. I'd love to hear your take on this.
1: I'm actually curious about something, Matt, that you said before that, which is that the reality is that all that stuff behind the behind the Lego brick is super complex and there's lots of different systems and in organizations often lots of legacy approaches that you have to take into account as you do that. I would think that kind of the default there would be that enterprises end up exposing a lot of that complexity via their APIs. How can they how can they avoid that?
2: It requires a lot of a lot of work, a lot of conscious work to avoid that, because the default is that, you know, how does an API design project usually usually work? You get the expert in that certain domain and the expert in that certain domain probably has designed all the backend systems. He knows in and out what all the corner cases are. And he has been in the field for a very long time, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. So he will usually good intention, good intention, lead you down the rabbit hole of getting all this complexity that he has built up in his system and put that in your API so that your API is as powerful as his backend, basically. And this is very dangerous to follow down this rabbit hole because it's the expert talks with authority and he wants and he's well-intentioned. So typically you need to counterbalance this. As soon as you have an expert in a certain domain that you need to design a good API, you should counterbalance this with another stakeholder, which represents the customer's point of view or someone who is not an expert in that field and just would be using this API. And he asked question, why do I care? You know, Ideally, it's the customer itself or, or some, someone from the customer segment. But you can also train yourself, basically, to take on that role. And it's all about, basically, a little bit of empathy with the future user of the API. And counterbalancing the expertise is, is
0: very helpful. Yeah, I guess to borrow your Lego metaphor, it would be a Lego with wires hanging out of it.
1: <laughs> Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> How do you organize that within or, an organization? I mean, who, who should that role be? Yeah, so ideally,
2: you have kind of a design thinking process. I think that's very good because it creates this empathy with the real user of the API. That's not always possible, right, to get a real end user. But having someone in the room who takes on that role, that role, is super helpful and i think if you have several people you you can just assign these this role to someone just tell them you're the customer and forget everything you know about our internal working of the systems
0: yeah it's it's funny earlier matt you said you know this kind of being that customer advocate you know someone that's that's sort of speaking for them i always find that like that got lost somewhere in what originally was called evangelism. And then later, you know, we heard de- developer advocacy, these kinds of things. And it, it becomes like advocating for the product. But when I said earlier that, like, I don't care about your implementation, I think I've always been that kind of play that role of try to be the customer for the moment is, and I've described it as like, if we're gonna design out what APIs look like or what your platform looks like, a collection of APIs, if you drew it on the wall, would a customer understand it? Right. Then you've passed this kind of customer centricity test of, you know, your platform thinking, right? And yeah, it's Adam to your point, like so especially until you get to a really large scale, you usually don't have a dedicated way of doing that. So that we come to this question of, is it centralized? Is it decentralized? How do you govern these things? How do you create this consistency? And I'm curious, Matt, what have you seen across these different organizations and, and kind of what works and maybe what doesn't?
2: Yeah, so making some conscious decisions up front, how you want to tackle certain recurring patterns is a good idea. Writing them up in a style guide right, API style guide. So you have cross cutting concerns, error handling, how do you do paging and and certain other patterns, just having that written up. And uh, if you're starting out, there's very good style guides for APIs already out there from big companies that you can use as a base, and then you can adapt them or just copy paste them uh, for your organization. But having something that everyone agrees on And it doesn't need to be that everyone is super happy with every micro decision in this style guide. That's not the point. But having a reference point that everyone can live with, basically, that that should be the goal.
0: That helps a lot. It's so fascinating, having been through quite a few of these platform things, how nowadays when I walk in the door, I'm like, how do you make decisions? (laughs) It's the first thing I want to know. (laughs) Because like... If you have a consensus culture where everyone, well, I call it that facetiously in some way, if you have a culture in which everyone has to be happy before you can do anything, like call me later when you figure that out, right? Consensus just means majority, by the way. (laughs) We forget that sometimes, that like most of us are cool with this and we know there are some that aren't. And I would say some of the things you're describing are kind of conventions, like API conventions that do get captured in style guides. But what about the other stuff, right? Like there's other things involved in producing a good design other than consistent paging,
2: right? Sure. You can even do something like uh, automation. You can check the uh, the designs with a linter and try to enforce some patterns over there. That's another part of it. And then I think what's even more important is doing the evangeliz- evangelization part inside the organization. The bigger the organization, the more difficult it is to do that. When API programs get ramped up, it's usually one API designer, right? And this API designer gets everything on his desk, and he can ensure consistency just himself, right? Just by enforcing that. And then as the API program grows, and sometimes it grows quickly, it gets overwhelmed And that's then when you start formalizing things, when you write design guidelines, or even when you start teaching a team. Maybe some organization built up this center of excellence or center of competency, but even that has its limits in big organizations. So then you need to, because the center of competency is really good at API design, but they are maybe not so good at the domain design then. So they're maybe not, life insurance expert or not the payment expert or, you know, so then you need to have a bigger network within your organization of people who understand the domain on one side, but also understand a lot about API design that go out and uh, speak the language of these different lines of business, but also understand API design. And that way you ensure consistency and they can cover maybe 80-90% 80-90% of all, all the cases, and sometimes there is a difficult case that gets then handled directly by the center of competence. That way, you can scale or that's one idea of scaling these API design decisions. But of course, um, the real consistency, you can only ensure <laughs> when, it, when it's small. Right. The startup is very easy to make, very consistent. But because multiple people are involved, everyone has a little bit of different thinking. In bigger organizations, you will always have a larger variety, even even though you have all these things in place.
0: I feel like you, in some ways, just told us a story of your life that you've experienced a few times. <laughs> 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 I have a feeling you've been that that solo API designer waiting for the program to pick up. Is that true?
2: waiting for the program to pick
0: up. Well, you said, you know, some some poor soul gets the stack on their desk,
2: you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, stack on the desk, pressure to to deliver and then uh, finding people who can who can help.
0: So who are those people that you look for? I'll tell you my tagline for this one on my approach to this, but I'm curious, do you go to the org chart? Do you go ask company leaders who you should talk to? Like, how do you build that network to sort of federate or decentralize this?
2: I think there's not the way of doing it, a variety of ways. So we have trainings that we usually do. And then there's a self-selecting process sometimes so people come up and ask questions and, you know, are super interested. And those are good candidates, right, that you're going to have as a coach. Self-selecting, I think, is always, always very good. But sometimes um, it just gets assigned and it sticks and it just works for the people.
0: I always call it my band of rebels. Like, I got to find the people who get
2: it, like
0: the platform thinkers.
2: And what's your secret sauce for that? How do
0: you do it? I ignore the org chart completely because it could be product, it could be engineering, could actually be business folks who've seen what a good, e- healthy ecosystem looks like. But just to your point, that self selection part, to me, that's how to get started. And if you rely on the organizational stuff, especially in larger places with really structured program management, like, you never go anywhere, it'll take forever. So all of this stuff has to get, I think to some extent, this is the story of like, how do you spread this throughout an organization? How do you build this groundswell? And I think we know that like, if you don't have the company leadership support, it's going to be constrained. Let's assume all that's come together. How do you figure out out of the ocean of APIs that you've boiled uh, and provided some consistency, what goes outside, right? What gets externalized? And what role does the designer play versus kind of you know the rest of the organization?
2: Hmm. Very good question. I think it's also different from organization to organization. So first of all, the organization has to make the decision that they want to give this stuff out. Some organizations don't go this step and it's fine. They get some benefit of using APIs just internally or in their own channels, and that's fine. But I think to really benefit from APIs, going that next step is certainly beneficial for some organizations that also have the backing right, for in the strategy, in the company strategy. So there needs to be an alignment in the company strategy between the API program and the decision to build a platform to become an ecosystem player or to become an ecosystem orchestrator. There needs to be alignment. And sometimes it requires pushing from the API initiative, basically, to, to get that done. And there are several approaches to finding out what really works. I think there is an intuition that some of the APIs are just purely internal and technical, but then there are some APIs that have something to do with the core of the business. Those are good candidates, right? The pure technical ones, nah, what, what shall the other people do with that? So this is a first selection process basically. And then you can either go hunting or you can go fishing. So go hunting, is well. I look for partners and I see what these partners need. And I give them these APIs and I assume there's other partners who also need these APIs so I can put them on my portal and promote them and market them. The phishing approach is very interesting because with phishing, you start with your intuition. You say, oh, that could work. And you give those APIs out. And maybe those APIs are not built yet. Maybe those APIs are just mocks. You describe them like a real product, but it's just a shell. It's just uh, the outside. It's just the box of the product and you go fishing with it. This is what you put in your portal and you see the response, right? So you need to have good analytics in place and you see what people are interested in, what they click. If they start playing with your sandbox, if you have one and that approach also I've seen working
0: very well. So Adam, it occurs to me like there's this question of when stuff goes outside, there's, you know, these days I feel like everyone talks about partners as opposed to five, 10 years ago, it was all public APIs and everything's community. And like when these kind of preview type situations that Matt's describing come together, it's like, when do you get the ball rolling on that community piece versus partner engagement? I feel like that part has gotten really weird the last few years
1: yeah and I mean, I think in that case, you know you're talking about the shell of of the API there, but even with that shell, it's communicating what's possible with the API. And that's the thing that anyone who's coming and is going to kind of kick the tires on that portal, they're going to want to be able to tell not just the like here's what it does. here's a button to contact us. But they're going to want to say, no, does you know you're promising that it does this thing, but I want to confirm by digging into what are the endpoints and what data really comes back from those responses. And you can do all that with the the shell without having having fully built that API. But I think that's probably the biggest mistake I've seen in that kind of pre-release situation is not giving all those details, just sort of only telling that high level and not getting down to the nitty-gritty, which is really where... Where a dev is going to discover whether they can do what they want to or not.
0: In the sense of this all being a design exercise, and granted, it tends to be a bit of a product management one too. I call this like the tactile feedback part, right? You can ask someone to read a document about something, but especially with developers, we know that we're all practically illiterate, like because we don't bother (laughs) to read. Just give me the damn thing and let me play with it, right? So I, I love the mock concept for sure. Matt, have you seen kind of this, this mock approach? I think even, you know, internal, external, whatever. Is that taking hold in some ways, or is this still something that isn't quite there at a lot of places?
2: Well, if it's successful, it goes away by itself, right? Because the mocks are going to be turned into real APIs. That should be the goal. But of course, it's not 100%. There's a certain percentage of APIs which are turned into real APIs. There are shaped maybe also by the community and by the feedback that you have gathered early on. And if not one thing you have probably gotten, that's the customer who's interested, that you can try to get into your meeting with the subject matter expert and really have this anti-poll and have the outside-in view. I think that's an opportunity to really build something that's customer-centric. Even if it's not the original API that you have put out there in the first version to go phishing, at least you have gotten the customer that would be interested in that kind of stuff and can help you build the real product.
0: Yeah, I've increasingly become a big fan of the notion of like design sprints, where like you know, you're going to go take on building some big new thing, and especially these days it tends to have an API component is have that moment where you sit with real customers and the developers that are going to build these things and have a discussion and do some discovery rather than the product manager doing all the interview and synthesizing and then, you know, handing the requirements over.
2: Yeah, there's things lost in translation.
0: Well, and you know, I feel like the job to be done stuff applies so well as a product methodology in that setting. And you know, it's like good old healthy dose of basic product management stuff in APIs works. But have you seen like the product managers really kind of grok APIs and engage in a way that that is suiting developers well? Is that getting better? Is that static?
2: Is it getting worse? I actually, I haven't really seen um, a development. Maybe I have not a big enough sample size that I can really say there is a development. I I have single points where I can say, well, that works and that works. that. but yeah.
0: Was that to say that you haven't seen product managers actually engage in the API design process? <laughs> By the way, that's an okay answer. That's sometimes true.
2: I have seen, um, but I couldn't say this is a general rule that if you give them a one training, that then they immediately get it, right? So, But I think it's also the argument
0: for like, engage the the engineers that are going to build these APIs in the discussion with those customers rather than using product managers as a translation. Let them focus on the functionality in the story, understand the job being done, rather than trying to learn how to design an API. Because you don't necessarily need that.
1: And my hunch says that there are a lot of organizations that might not have product management at all, or might not think initially that it's even important for something so technical, right? the technical bits of the API. And so then a lot of times I bet it's another role. And I think that goes, Jason, to your earlier point of throw out the org chart because it's really about the things that you're doing here to make great APIs and not so much whether you're an engineer or business development or whatever your role is.
0: I know in my past of having gone through the experience that you were describing, Matt, of being that lone API designer trying to spin all the plates and then watching a program grow up around it and trying to adapt. What did your reporting look like through that experience? Like, who did you report to? Because I've asked this question before and I've seen a million different answers and I know mine was all gray dotted lines and very confusing, but like, have you been in engineering? Have you been in product? Have you, you know, been in other parts of the company and doing this kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I think the interesting thing is as a consultant, you come in, in lots of different roles, but you end up doing the same thing, right? You have different labels, but you kind of, you just do the right thing. And I have kind of lost the respect for the roles a little bit because, well, it's just doing the right thing at the, at the right time. And that can be a a developer that can be a product manager that can even be a tester who is doing that thing.
0: I feel like it's such a reason why so often we see this inverse Conway maneuver, right? The idea of deliberately designing the system through your sort of, you know, microservice API, whatever interface to be the organization that you want, that customers want it to be, and then let the organization adapt to it. That part of that kind of band of rebels approach to it is like, you just have to ignore the org chart for a little while and do the right thing for the customer. Have you faced being that consultant coming into organizations, and I mean, you definitely worked in some bigger, more entrenched industries where there's a resistance from kind of the leaders within the company to the change that some of this design exercise represents?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, resistance is everywhere, not only in the, in the management, but it's also even in dev where people just used to work in a certain way and they just like to keep it that way. Certainly, you find that everywhere and i think i've just uh, learned to live with it and sometimes you can manage your way around it and just keep them separate keep them where they are and do your api thing besides them and sometimes there is like an, an more open confrontation maybe that's happening but definitely having support from the top i mean that is I, I would say that this is a requirement having some support from the top if if you're doing this as a complete rebel without any mandate from the top depends on the organization of course, but if you would do this in a major organization i would I think you would be just shut down. so getting a mandate, even if it's a small mandate to start with, I think is a wise thing to do yeah I agree even in the last year
0: or two it's at that stage where. Well, I'll say as much as the band of rebels still applies in the sense that you have to build a network of like-minded people who understand how this works, an organization can't rise above the constraints of its leadership. And in today's world, if you haven't understood how your company will operate as a platform with APIs, that's on my table stakes list of engaging anywhere. I feel like the show's mascot is gonna end up being like a little Grace Hopper doll. I need to get like a bobblehead doll of Grace Hopper (laughs) saying the most dangerous phrase in the language is, we've always done it this way. (laughs) Because this is the thing that always comes up is like this this entrenched thinking and how the business was built and ran for years and not recognizing we're in this transformational time where if you're not adapting to this platform shift in the world, you might get left behind. Matt, I feel like, as usual with these things, there's so much to cover when we look at the big picture of kind of building APIs within an organization, getting it outside. Like, there's so much to go through. We could go on forever, <laughs> which is, is so much fun. I mean, it's the fun of doing this thing. But any closing thoughts for us to kind of, and I'm always kind of have a heart for people who are listening who are like, this is overwhelming. There's a mountain of things you just mentioned. How do I get started? How do I get the ball rolling?
2: Well, I think what's really a good way of getting the ball rolling is thinking about developers, the developers that are using your products later on, putting yourself in their shoes, and making life simple for them. And I think then you can't go wrong. Well put. Well put.
1: I just want to throw in another plug, Matt, for API University where you've put together some of the some of the thoughts and some of maybe the scars you've uh, you've received over the years. We'll put it in the notes too, but API-university.com. Yeah, sure. Thank you.
0: I definitely have admiration that you went through the effort to do it. It's one of those things I always said I was do I would do and never did. <laughs>
2: well you're doing it with the show.
0: Yeah, exactly. Here we are now. Well Adam, thanks again for co-hosting.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: And Matt, thanks for staying up late in Switzerland with us and making time for us. Really appreciate it.
2: That was fun. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. And uh, thanks again, folks, for uh, listening to API Intersection. See you in the next one. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.